Hello, everyone, and welcome to another informative episode of the Florida Business Forum podcast. Let's open the Florida Business Forum floodgates and let the information begin to flow. Here's your Florida Business Forum information guru and anchorman, Sam Yates. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another information edition of the Florida Business Forum podcast. Now, we're the only podcast in the entire state of Florida that focuses on businesses and not-for-profits, and we're very proud of that. And uh, the business information floodgates, as we like to say, are open. So in a previous episode, we heard from Leslie Olson, and uh, Leslie uh, is a member of the American Institute of Certified Planners, District Planning Group. Her business partner, Kara Wood, is with us today, and these two entrepreneurs are back for another episode of the Florida Business Forum podcast, and we're going to start with Kara today. But first off, ladies, welcome back to the program. Thank you. Thanks. I find it uh, remarkable that we have two lady entrepreneurs, and uh, that in itself is a big yay. Uh, where do we start? Tell us more about you. Uh, well, do you want to know something personal? You want me to sort of zip through um, professional credentials? Uh, what is it? What is your area of interest? I always love to start with the personal side. Well, I, uh, I grew up in this general region. I, um, I was actually born in Palm Beach County. Um, and then my father actually moved our family to the Bahamas for a couple of years. He was, um, he was quite an entrepreneur and adventurer. Uh, so it was interesting to grow up around the water with very little resources on a very small boat. People think of that experience as being idyllic and luxurious. I promise you it was nothing like that. It was idyllic, but you know, when you're living on a small boat with very little fresh water and only electricity in the morning and in the evening, it really has you focus on what's important in life. So I just I love telling that story. It was an incredible way to start um, start a life really focusing on you know, what, what family connection is about. I learned to read at a very young age uh, because, you know, there's just not much else to do on a boat. Um, and so uh, my, my brother and I grew up mostly in Martin County, and then I left to go to college in the Northeast. I went to Boston University um, and then later went to University of Miami for a master's degree of architecture. And I eventually landed in Fort Pierce uh, because I wanted to be closer to my family, who was in Palm City, uh, in Port St. Lucie, and uh, and I wanted to be in a smaller town. I didn't want to be in the traffic of Miami anymore. I wanted a you know a, a, a you know um, a small town feeling with with a with a proper downtown where I could walk to restaurants, and so that really attracted me to Fort Pierce. Um, so that's a just a brief snippet of me on a personal level. As a Fort Pierce native, I can relate to that. And I've lived in many different uh, locations around the nation. And there is just something about uh, coming to Fort Pierce. And, and it has to do more with, I think, just getting sand in my shoes. Uh, it's the <laughs> Sandy Shoes Festival. But, uh, you know, that is a, a, a great foundation for looking ahead from a, a planning perspective. And has that impacted what you have done and, and how you have an outlook on where we are going. 
Uh, it has. When I settled in Fort Pierce, my husband at the time and I bought a house in one of the historic neighborhoods. I have had a, a long-time love for historic architecture, which is one of the reasons I landed at University of Miami for my master's degree there. I have a, a focus on traditional architecture and town planning. And, um, and growing and spending some time in that area of Fort Pierce really developed my um, my heart for the downtown areas, the proximity of those historic single-family neighborhoods to the downtown, and the importance of having a thriving downtown Fort Pierce for the larger growth of, of the city and, and St. Lucie County. My grandfather had an office in the old arcade building, second floor, third window in from the southernmost oh, section. And uh, during lunchtime, we would walk from the arcade building to downtown Fort Pierce and Bloodsworth Pharmacy, where I would have a root beer Coke float. And um, it, was, it was just a charm of Fort Pierce. We haven't lost that yet here. No, not at all. And it's continuing to slowly blossom over the decades. Um, it's interesting. I'm, I'm sure at some point we'll, getting, we'll get around to talking about my, my family business, High Tide Boat Lifts, that my father started in the late 1970s. And when we were living in Stewart, when I was growing up in the Stewart area, I would sometimes, when I was in high school and I could drive, I would sometimes come up to Fort Pierce to have lunch with my dad. And I really didn't know that there was a downtown because at that time, it wasn't, it wasn't flourishing like it is today. There weren't a, a number of choices for shops and restaurants to go to. And so we went to other areas of St. Lucie County for lunch. And it was interesting coming back here years later and realizing what a, you know, what kind of a, um, a blossoming gem the downtown was. Because when I moved here in 2005, it was, it was just starting to unfold. And I think that's happening with a lot of municipalities uh, within our region, and I, I do want to get into that. But you touched upon the marine industry. If uh, memory recalls, uh, Florida is uh, second only to Louisiana as far as the marine impact, and your family does have that heritage with high tide. Indeed. So my father started High Tide actually as a marine construction company in the late 1970s. It was, you know, building docks and boat lifts, uh, not boat lifts, but seawalls, uh, restoring seawalls. And over time, his experience with building docks had him understand that at that time, the only way to lift your boat out of the water was was with a davit that you would mount on the dock and it would have cables that would attach to the, you know, the, the bow and the stern of the boat and lift it out of the water. There was minimal lifting capacity with that type of lift. And the company that was making and selling those lifts wasn't very customer service friendly. So he really saw the opportunity for a better, more diverse product with better customer service. So he actually developed what has become the staple of our product line, which is a four post cable lift uh, in the first floor of our house. <laughs> At the time, he just hired a welder, did some drawings because that was the entrepreneur that my father was and, um, and eventually patented a gear drive that is, that is the staple of our product that other companies have copied over time and you know so we're flattered by you know by the mimicry um, but primarily what high tide boat lifts does is manufacture lifts for the residential market so for people who don't live on the water that's if you live on the indian river for example you have a, a beautiful dock you know outside your front yard you can install 
uh, pilings in the water with aluminum I-beams attached to cables and you can lift your boat out of the water. So it keeps the boat safe. It's harder to steal a boat when it's on I-beams hovered above the water. Um, And it also provides for much easier maintenance. You don't have to scrub it and and maintain it as much. Um, And we lift everything from lifts as small as things that lift kayaks and jet skis to our record is 90 tons. That's incredible. 90 tons? 90 tons. Wow. That has to take quite a powerful lift, but uh, you guys have made it happen. We did. Yeah. And spoken like a true marketing person, too. And I understand that that was one of the roles that you played uh, that you carried out diligently for High Tide. Yes, for a brief time. So uh, so my father owned the company up until, um, up until 2012 uh, when he decided to hand it over to my brother and I. My brother is Craig Wood. Um, he was actually a marine contractor who installed this product uh, for many years and so he knows he knows the practical sides of the business Um, and my brother invited me to join him in running the company in 2012 uh, because I came from a very different background I you know was at that time well versed in management and um, sort of you know higher level decision making so uh, so when we joined the company we just we changed some of the some of the marketing schemes we I worked with um, with other contractors to uh, to re brand the company um, you know changing the the look of our print materials changing our website um, just modernizing all of that a bit and I think that's important for us to know and, and by the way uh, I want to have um, the okay from you and your brother to come back and let's spotlight high tide on the Florida Business Forum because as you say there's nothing else like it can we do that he would love to do that. He's much better at talking about it than I am, and he's really articulate and, articulate and passionate. So yes, I'll, I'll rope him in. I'll find time in his schedule. All right, ladies and gentlemen, rest assured we're going to do that. But a, a lot of what you just said uh, is very, very key to being uh, in the, the planning division the planning of what is going on and not just uh, the planning of it, but uh, the overall, management of that and uh, that's something that you did very very well and and I don't mean that past tense it's what you did uh, previous to what you're doing now you're still doing that but it's a big picture it's more than just saying we're going to do this it's an implementation plan could you give a little explanation on that um, sure. Yeah, a lot of the role of the planning manager at St. Lucie County, and that's a um, that's a role that, it, that still exists today, is um, is very much orchestrating the process of development. So, um, so when someone wants to build something, it can be a variety of things. It can be a housing community. It can be a large industrial development. Um, there's an extensive process uh, that runs through what's called in the public sphere the development review committee, which includes all of the different disciplines that oversee land management. So that is engineering, um, public works, you know, where storm water, where your water goes, um, do you have enough uh, water retention on your site? Um, there's the environmental resources department who oversees the protection of wetlands and species. Um, and we have a lot of that in our county. We have a lot of beautiful environmentally sensitive lands. So they try to um, balance that, that tricky uh, equality between allowing development to occur and making sure that our, our beautiful lands are protected to the degree that's feasible. Um, and then there's the planning staff that not only oversees the process, but makes sure that the land development regulations are implemented appropriately. So really a lot of that process is 
is managing all of the different interests because sometimes the land development regulations will drive one thing from a planning side or an engineering side, but a different thing from an environmental side. So ideally the planning manager role, which is a lot of what I focused on, was was navigating those different interests between the developer and the staff and the elected officials and trying to um, herd a project through the process as quickly as possible. Being the public relations marketing guy on the outside, I, I really had a unique, and still do when I'm involved in it, a unique view of how all of those pieces come together. And I have to compliment you. That is just uh, something that has to uh, keep you awake sometimes at night, thinking of like, if A, then B, what's the permutation for this, if this happens. But you made it happen. Indeed. And sometimes the most frustrating part is simply that the regulations as they're written don't necessarily allow for the best outcome. Sometimes the regulations are good at protecting the public interest, and sometimes they're just they're just not very um, they're just not very developed in protecting the public interest while allowing good development to occur in the most efficient way possible. So so sometimes it's sort of working around the regulations to get good results, despite you know despite what are sometimes handcuffs, quite frankly, in the regulatory process. How far out, realistically, do we need to be planning today in our changing economic, and everything is changing, how far out do we need to be planning and forecasting what is going to happen to not get behind the curve? Um, that's a really good question. And sometimes sometimes I think that there's some natural tension in the development review process with, with the um, county staff trying to trying to shoehorn a, a current development project that just wants to just wants to get built into what is a very long-term vision that may or may not happen you know quite frankly even you know even professional planners we you know we can predict to the best of our ability but we don't none of us has the crystal ball um, so we don't know all of the factors that are going to drive politics and economics and environment and all of those things um, that start to shape what the community is going to be in 10, 20, or 30 years. Um, but to answer your question, there are different aspects of visionary planning. Um, like, for example, the Transportation Planning Organization, which coordinates um, you know, road building for the entire county. Um, I believe their long-range transportation plan is at something like 30 years 25 years, um, as Leslie is prompting me on the side. Um, and so, and those are things that are very statistically based, right? They're just, tra- there's traffic modeling based on predictions about how many people might live here in the future. So numbers are easier. Sometimes, you know, something is as esoteric as like maybe sea level rise, that's less That's less um, easy to, to predict over the course of time. I'll come back to sea level rise in a moment, but I'm also involved heavily in the, the Gold Coast Builders Association uh, to the south of us. And in many of the conferences and planning sessions that I go to in connection with that organization and some of the other builders organizations around the state, they're all built out, for example, for all practical purposes, to our south. And uh, they're saying, by the way, uh, in your planning process, builders, just skip over Martin County because Martin County is Martin County. (laughs) But uh, all of a sudden, we're looking at um, permits uh, on the horizon for St. Lucie County, 30,000, 40,000 permits that are in the pipeline. And that's got to be a very unique position for you to be in now that you're on the private sector. 
It is. It's sometimes it's just it's hard to uh, because, of course, it's one of the big shifts is going from representing the public sector to representing a client. And, you know, and I'm still navigating how how best to do that while completely respecting my colleagues on the public in the public sector. Um, and we've already found that in district planning group that we have to start explaining to our clients that we want to help them get through the process as quickly as possible. And everyone else who's flocking to Florida needs to get through the process as quickly as possible. So, so while we are very customer service friendly to our clients, um, we have to make sure that they understand that, uh, that they're, you know, they're facing, they're facing a lot of competition with other developers and builders that you might've gotten here first. And I've got my own opinions on, on some of that, uh, that I won't go into because I'm not the one being interviewed. I'm in the process of interviewing you guys. Thank goodness. It's not, you know, you, asking me questions <laughs> but uh you know i, I look at uh, some of the things that uh, you have uh, from a planning perspective to deal with uh, you mentioned a lot of people flocking to florida not just from the northeastern corridor but from california from other states where uh, taxes are high but certainly the pandemic had its impact on our population and i would feel safe to say the pandemic has had its impact on that future planning for communities and everything that goes into a community. Fair statement? Indeed, yeah. How do you address that? It's difficult. It really has to be a community-wide conversation, which it has become. The Economic Development Council has done a great job shining a flashlight on the challenge of um, affordable housing in our community, as we've been as we've been fortunate to attract a lot of employers to this area. It has placed a lot of a lot of pressure on um, on the ability of the housing market to keep up. Um, and of course, you know these things go in waves. When I first started my planning career in Fort Pierce in two thousand five, there were there were just there were residential builders just beating down the door. And so that's you know so that's run its cycle, and and, and we're kind of back in that cycle, but it just can't keep up. With um, with the industrial and other workforce development that's um, that's occurring. Ironically, I was actually living in Massachusetts um, for the two years right before the pandemic started, and I just so happened to decide to move back to Fort Pierce um, right right before the pandemic. And, um, and so I actually moved in like May of 2020. And so and I could see I could see the trends of how the pandemic was starting to impact that. Uh, northeast region and um and so it's it's not surprising that people have you know have wanted to come to florida you know whether you agree or disagree with different pandemic related policies the fact is that for many people it's been it's been easier to have a life and keep a business open in florida over the last couple of years indeed it has yeah Yeah, it really um and so so yeah so we're seeing we're seeing the effects of that of trying to again just trying to keep up with you know with the demand of of all sorts of developers coming here other things are changing too. Uh, autonomous vehicles, 5G. Uh, we see the reports of the autonomous vehicles, the, the tractor trailers that are already in operation on the turnpike. Uh, we see the, the new LED lighting that's going in on many stretches of interstate that coincidentally are about every 500 feet, which is the range of a 5G transmitter for autonomous vehicles. Those have to be challenges, immense challenges for our community and, and other communities as well, though. Um, I imagine they are. I will say that I have not. I have not seen those kinds of um, of technological nuances come into the conversation for our clients. 
Um, I think that there there are there are related conversations in terms of sort of the sociological predictors of how will people live post pandemic. Obviously, a lot of people started working from home during the pandemic, and while while there's the benefit of being able to have that kind of flexibility, which I personally think is a wonderful thing for people, it's also highlighted the um, the social detriment of that. And you know, and now post pandemic people, you know, some people are, are realizing that that there is there's a downside side to isolating oneself so much. Um, so, so it, it kind of, it will, it's, it's, it's still to be seen um, how that will shape, um, for example, housing typologies um, for major builders, and how that will shape uh, workplace, workplace development, it doesn't appear to have slowed down, obviously, it can't slow down manufacturing, right? Manufacturing, you, you have to be there, you can't remote weld, that just doesn't work. <laughs> that, that doesn't work. I was speaking to a tool and die gentleman last uh, evening, and uh, he had moved here from uh, Connecticut. And he was like, I, I can't deal with what's happening in Connecticut with all the, the taxes and the regulations. Uh, applied and had like 10 different uh, job opportunities within his, his first week of looking in this area, which, yeah. you know, our Treasure Coast region has not really had that reputation in the past of being a manufacturing magnet, but it is now. Yeah. It's not just agriculture anymore. So we are, we are definitely... Uh, changing something else that's changing, and, and uh, you briefly mentioned it uh, earlier: climate change. Uh, the if climate change, regardless of uh, whether you believe it is or happening or not happening, we do see changes uh, when it comes to coastal development. What does that mean for our uh, Florida communities? Well, that's one of the things that District Planning Group is working through now. We've actually been engaged by St. Lucie County to um, to help their staff navigate uh, a resiliency planning cr- uh, effort and creation of a, of a resiliency and adaptation plan. Um, and so we're looking to the experts to guide how it's best to do that. You know, what what are we seeing on a local level? Because you're right, this is this is kind of a politically divisive issue and and we're not and we're really not focused on you know the larger global questions we're we're focused on what are we seeing on the ground today that's completely undeniable in terms of roadways that you know that have been underwater much more frequently than they used to be and how do we make sure that you know that our infrastructure um, can withstand you know what are relatively um, um, predictable um, changes in, you know, in king tides and, you know, and flooding that, you know, that we can see coming forward, you know, how do we protect, protect environmentally sensitive lands, mm-hmm. all of those kinds of things that, that the local experts, again, regardless of political affiliation, know is happening. And for our audience, uh, we have spent quite a bit of time on the Surfside tragedy, for example, and the PhD uh, geologist who did a lot of the, uh, this, he called it a speculative study on the cause for Surfside and uh, well-documented information about the rise in sea level coupled with the rise in the underground aquifer that abuts to uh, salt water and uh, he has uh, certainly put forth some suggestions that I think the state and uh, many other uh, organizations are taking a look at but that that is something real that's happening now for those of us that are uh, living on a peninsula so it, it is something that uh, you're involved in at this point then. 
It's uh, yeah. And those, and those kinds of questions are really um, they're like retrofitting questions and sustainability questions Um, on a personal side. I, I happen to live in a five story condo building and I'm the president of my condo association. So I can see, and of course the, you know, the majority of the residents of my building are retired. And so when the Surfside building collapsed, it was, you know, it was a a source of, of, um, of some panic in our building. And, and so it's, it's raised some useful questions about, um, long-term planning for individual structures and when those kinds of structural assessments need to occur, um, which is what our building is doing now. We've hired a wonderful firm out of Cocoa Beach to come in and really take a look at um, how you know wh- what's going on with the structural integrity of the building. Um, and at the same time, it's important to put that event into context. What were the particular conditions of when that building was built, um, where it's sited relative to the ocean, to, you know, to greater levels of salinity um, than some of, you know, than some other condos. It's not like we have to panic that every, every building more than three stories is going to suddenly end up in the ground. Yeah. Nope. But it, but it is something that uh, we're, we're glad to hear that you are for your condo association in particular, keeping a close eye on that. One of the things that I'm tasked with is keeping a close eye on the time. And I try to keep all of our episodes around 15 to 20 minutes. So we are fast running out of time for this particular episode. And as I'm looking at my notes, uh, we were joking prior to recording. And some of my bullet points, you're like, oh, that's an entire episode right there. So yeah, there's a lot of other things that I would like to come back and talk about. And uh, with your permission, we'll schedule that at some point in the future. That sounds great. Thank you so much for having me. Before we go, how can people get in touch with you, Kara? Yes, I know we were just talking about that before the episode started. We are district planning group is um, is officially uh, officially nine months old now, and so um, because we've been so lucky to uh, to start this business in a very busy time, we are flooded with work. Um, and so, embarrassingly, our website is still under construction, but we're making great headway. So, um, so it's pretty phonetically easy. It's districtplanninggroup.com, um, and then you can reach myself or Leslie at Kara at districtplanninggroup.com or Leslie, L-E-S-L-I-E, at districtplanninggroup.com. Perfect. Ladies, thank you for being here. And of course, we had more to hear from Leslie in our previous episode. In another episode, we're going to have both of you back. So we look forward to that. And once again, thank you very much. Thank you, Sam. Another awesome episode of the Florida Business Forum is in the books. And I want to thank everyone who is listening and continues to listen. Don't forget to please share the program because we continue to grow across the entire state of Florida. So make sure you tell your friends and business associates about us because we all know that business news opportunities to uh, be in the media seem to be shrinking. We, on the other hand, are expanding. I'm Sam Yates. Thanks for joining us. The Florida Business Forum is dedicated to showcasing Florida businesses and CEOs of all sorts to promote their business or not-for-profit in the only business forum of its type in Florida. Thanks for tuning in, and remember, the Florida Business Forum is now accepting guest applications. Have a great day, everyone, and stay tuned for more business.